0: Revelation chapter 4, our first passage after the letters to the churches, the letters to the churches being eh, probably the easiest part of the book. Now we start jumping into the stuff that might be a touch more challenging. I would remind you this is God's Word, and though it was written, I'm going to think, probably in 95, 96 A.D., And the Lord is so infinitely wise that when it was written in, it was written for John, it was written for the early church, but it was written for you, uh, even today. And this is God's word. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask... that you would give us the minds and the hearts, the ears and the eyes to understand your word. Particularly passages like this that uh, are difficult and the details, though, perhaps not quite so difficult in the big picture. Give us love for Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. had the privilege this calendar year of teaching both Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. A lot. You can't study books like those, teach books like those, wrestle through texts like these, without starting to wonder kind of about language in general you've heard some of my thoughts on this in the past and just thinking through kind of the limitations the 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 frailties of human language I mean how many times have you said or thought or heard well you, you just have to be older to understand I mean, how many times parents have you thought or said or felt that your kids just can't understand how much you love them until they have children of their own? They just just can't, they can't wrap their minds around how much you love them until they have children of their own. And then they're like, oh, I get it. (laughs) Oh, I get it. This is why mom acted the way she did. I get it. This is why dad was the way he was. I get it. To think about the inability of language to express the depth of human emotion. And you think, well, I mean, okay, fair enough. That's a human emotion and such. But to think about just kind of, again, the the limitations of language and, I mean, I'm a person that probably knows more words than your average bear, and yet I can't explain lots of things. Can't figure out the right words to put it in. I mean, think about this, just, again, as a thought process. Gonna go back and imagine what it was like to be the first person to have to come back and explain the aurora borealis. Right? The northern lights, You, you know what the northern lights are. You go up in the right time of the year when it's dark up north, whatever, you get to see the magnetic kind of field of the earth, which by the way is swapping, and by the end of my life, might actually the north and south pole might switch, which would be amazingly cool. Um, it's in process of happening now. It's happened a number of times, byproduct of the flood. Um but you, you go up there and you basically are watching kind of the magnetic poles of the Earth kind of in essence shred the atmosphere, and when it shreds the atmosphere, it turns all kinds of pretty bright colors. And to think about trying to explain that, the first person to see it trying to go back to the family and explain that. I mean, to, again, think about just the. I mean, you didn't. Have, it's like glowing cotton candy in the sky. I mean, that's that's actually not a poor description, really. I mean, if you actually look at it, some of them you might say, well, it's like a rainbow of green. I, I don't know exactly what that would mean, but I mean, that's about it. Funny enough, that's actually one of the descriptions is explicitly in this text. Which is why as you begin to wrestle through passages like these, and you get to go, well, what does it mean that it's a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald? And you go, well... <laughs> Part of that is because language is not powerful enough, it's not strong enough, it's not mighty enough to capture the glory of God in its fullness. And it's important when we come to passages like this one to have the appropriate amount of humility to realize Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and other passages are God's baby talk where he's dumbing down his glory for us I mean you do this with your children all the time where when they, they ask a complicated question you dumb it down to their level because they don't understand all of the kind of you know, things that are needed when they ask how the refrigerator works well it pulls the heat out of the air and makes cold air inside Now, is that actually what's happening well I mean yeah, at some level that's exactly right But it's not explaining the condenser, it's not explaining the coolant, it's not explaining why it has the crazy fan that makes all the goofy noises in the middle of the night. It's not explaining any of those things, but it's capturing the reality in a simplified fashion. Revelation chapter 4 is in many ways capturing the reality of God's glory in the way it would be explained to a four-year-old. We're the four-year-old. It's not in the way that God interacts with his own glory and the fullness and greatness of it, but instead in a simplified and understandable fashion. Now again, this is where the very beginning, chapter 1, the very first sermon we had in this book kind of comes into play where you remember... That when Jesus begins this book, he says to John, I'm going to reveal to you things that you need to see, things that you need to understand, but the mechanism that I'm going to use to do that are symbols, that was in the very first three verses that Jesus explains to John that he's going to use symbols, and then he immediately does so as describing himself as the one who walks between the lampstands. And oh, yeah, by the way, Jesus himself even explains that the lamps are the churches. He himself, Jesus, has given us the, the hermeneutical framework, the, the perspective to look at this book. It is a book filled with symbols and pictures designed to help us understand concepts that cannot fully be put to words. And our challenge today as we come to Revelation chapter 4 is going to be to wrap our minds around the pictures that are given to us. But even as we begin that task, I want to kind of issue a challenge as we start. You've heard me over the last decade be unbearably critical so often of the, the kind of church climate in which we live, where I say our Christianity is too soft because our understanding of God is too small. And I'm going to encourage us as we dive into Revelation chapter 4 to, to really endeavor to try to correct that small thinking, to correct that small portrait of the living God. The first chapter begins with, after this, look at uh, the transition, the change. And again, uh, this book has uh, very much the feeling of a, of a dream. There's no segues in lots of places. It jumps from place to place. There are not clean and tidy transitions. And here we have the new one. It's a new vision, a new start, a new thing. And it's even a change of location. Rather than Jesus addressing the churches, John is pulled in some fashion spiritually into, into this vision of the throne room of God. A vision that is designed to capture God's glory and is marvelous. And the very first thing that we would notice in the text here is this vision is at its core, it's a Trinitarian vision. God exists in his very essence as a triune God. One God, three persons. And it's important that we highlight that fact so that we don't unintentionally kind of become Unitarians or modalists where we just forget that God isn't three persons all of the time. The very first voice there in verse 1, the first voice which he had heard speaking to him like a trumpet, you remember that back in chapter 1 was identified as the voice of Jesus. Jesus. So here you have a conversation taking place between John and Jesus himself. And Jesus says to him with a voice that sounds like a trumpet. Again, you can tell it's not actually like somebody talking through a trumpet. You, you get that, right? Again, it's symbols and images. It's designed to be, you know, to convey power and might and grandeur. And they come up here. Come up here and I will show you what life is like prior, I'm going to suggest, even to the second coming. This is what the world is like now. This is what you need to see. This is what it is like to be in God's presence. And as Jesus says this, verse 2, the Holy Spirit captures John and in his soul and his spirit takes him into this vision where he immediately engages God the Father. Triune presence of God. And again, talking about Christianity that's too small because we've lost our sense of wonder, we've lost our sense of greatness of God, I would suggest one of the reasons for that is I think a lot of times we genuinely forget that God is a triune God. I mean, by that I mean we know it intellectually, but to, to really process the idea of God being Trinity forces us to kind of humble ourselves because it's not something we can fully comprehend. I mean, we are, as humans, prone to binary decisions. It is one thing or the other. It can be one or it can be three, but for humans, it can't be both at the same time. The problem is that is not how God works. (laughs) Jesus can be both God and man, even in a manger. He can be both one God and three persons. He can write a book that was authored by men and by God himself simultaneously. He's not limited by our binary choices. To force us into submission, that's why we say the creed all the time. Either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. To remind us into this submissive place to challenge our thinking that we are not that grand in comparison and as he's taken into god's presence he begins there in verse 3 to explain what he sees and again here this is i would suggest more even than an accurate description he's using symbology He's using the language of the Old Testament. Specifically, he's using Ezekiel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 7. He's using the structure of Daniel chapter 7 with the words of Ezekiel chapter 1 to describe what he sees with God. One who had the appearance of Jasper. Jasper is always connected with brilliance. And in fact, we think most likely by by the time this was written, when they think of Jasper, they were probably thinking more what we think of as diamond. He had the appearance of sparkling brilliance. You know, some of you, you like to put all of the Christmas lights on your Christmas tree. I mean, like, you can't count them. There's so many thousands of them. And then some of you like to light the entire tree. It powers everything down in the neighborhood around you. You turn your tree on, you can as all of the electricity is sucked up. And then sometimes I used to do this, okay, I love it. You go sit and kind of squint next to the tree and just all of the the individual lights just merge into this just vision of brilliance. I, I suspect that's a similar portrait to what he's describing. Light passing through diamond and sparkling in a way that the mind can't even fully process it carnelian it's got brilliant colors and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald I love that description that right there friends is where words are not powerful enough to capture an image what does it mean that it was a rainbow that looks like an emerald it could have been a sparkly rainbow There's that category. Could have been a rainbow composed entirely out of green. There's that category. It could have been the Aurora Borealis looking thing all around it. It could have been. All that to say is you get the impression of brilliance and beauty. And in fact, actually, so much brilliance and so much beauty that we kind of actually forget to pay attention. He doesn't describe one thing what god looks like his eyes actually aren't mighty enough they're not powerful enough to get to penetrate the glory to describe the god that he sees he just he just gets to the glory cloud and stops again going back to our christmas tree illustration it's like the eyes aren't strong enough to see the trunk you just get all you know kind of overwhelmed with all the lights and the ornaments and the tinsel and the glitter and all the things you just you can't see deeply enough and you've heard me say I love how the scriptures use understatement brilliantly you know understatement is where you say something that sounds kind of important-ish maybe but it means like infinitely more (laughs) like I love my children well yes of course It means way more than that, obviously, but yes. Here you have again this understatement where you see God in his brilliance, but it's still just so small compared to the reality. The triune God who dwells in glory. So he doesn't describe the God on the throne. He kind of describes that there was a throne. He he describes that there's there's beautiful, sparkly, colorful glory all around it. And then he introduces us to the elders. Around the throne were 24 thrones, maybe in a square. We don't actually get the description. Uh, probably a square, good guess. Maybe two two sets of 12, I don't know. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. You have 24 elders, and this is where we start running into the oh no, you've used a symbol, but you haven't fully explained it to us. You've used, obviously, something that's designed to mean something, but we don't fully gather it. Well, you can look throughout the rest of the book and kind of take clues between the white garments and the idea of the elders. These are representative of the people of God. And there's probably kind of one of two different scenarios in mind. He doesn't explain this to us. So I'm going to leave both on the table and let you decide. I suspect that all 24, they're they're representative of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. 12 for each of the people of God. 12 for the old administration of the covenant. 12 for the new administration of the covenant. Now, whether these are actual real humans or if these are angels representing these people, I don't know. And you'll notice I actually took the same cop out when it came time to talk about the angels of the seven churches. Are those actually real angels or are those the pastors of the seven churches? You know, honestly, the grammar leaves both options open and we can't fully tell. Which one do we have here? Do we have actual literal humans sitting in these thrones around uh, the throne of God? Or do we have angels that are functioning as representatives for these people of God? The grammar leaves it open, honestly. We don't know. Either way, it doesn't honestly matter that much. The implication being is that while God is residing, the triune God is residing in his glory. His people belong in that location. They belong in his presence. And again, I love the fact that what are they residing in? His people being pictured, they're, they're not, you know, in servant's gear. They're not standing there with a mop and a vacuum. They don't have dust rags. They're, they're not, you know, laboring even. They're sitting on the thrones. They're sharing in his victory. Belonging in his presence, belonging in his glory, and belonging in his victory. Dressed like royalty. White garments, purity, the purity of their faith and their deeds, golden crowns, victorious on their head. And then verse 5 again kind of challenges us with with the glory shows back up and from the throne there came and then here... (coughs) He switches to Exodus using the portrait of Mount Sinai. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, even working before the throne of God. This is a staggering portrait I mean, you you do have to kind of use your imagination a little bit. And I love that he doesn't describe God, so you can't actually imagine that. So don't try to imagine him. You have the beautiful glory of God in the backdrop. You have the throne out of which the most terrifying sounds ever are coming. You have the people of God arrayed around the throne. And then verse 6, right in front of it, you have a gigantic sea. I mean, for us, they're like, well, that's kind of odd. (laughs) Well, you have to actually make a couple of cultural adjustments here to be reminded. There were very few things that the Jews hated more than the sea. They hated, hated water. And I don't mean like water that forms from the sky, that, you know, water your plants, like the ocean, Mediterranean, they hated the sea. It was a portrait of unreliability. It was a place that oftentimes destruction came from. It was not a portrait of safety and peace. It was oftentimes even used to capture the idea of evil. And here, interestingly, right at the very foot of the throne of God, the thing that would have represented instability to the max behaves like a jewel stone in front of them. Again, this goes back to the significance when Jesus calms the wind and the waves. There's a significance there. He's actually, in many ways, kind of setting us up for this idea that Jesus is the one who is mightier than even the sea itself, and now we get to God's presence, and the thing that would have been bothersome and and odious and unpleasant to them even resides in his very presence, and instead of it being a source of sorrow or frustration or unpleasantness, what does it look like? It looks like it's made of crystal. It's beautiful. It's sparkly, and again, think about the reflection of the throne of God reflecting on the sea in front like my <laughs> wow I mean that's an image isn't it That's a lot Well we're not done yet Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Here now, he takes us again back to Ezekiel. I think chapter 10 here where he takes us to the very angels that Ezekiel engages. These are the angels that are described in 1 and 2 of Ezekiel uh, as uh, these are the wheels of the, um, of the holy chariot, God's glory chariot. And what you have here is, I think what John is describing in Revelation is, each of these, there's four of them, they're all facing a different direction. Again, like you have God's throne in the middle, and you have the elders probably around in a square would be my guess, and you have one of the great angels around. And again, remembering these angels are creatures of fire, creatures of wings, Creatures of eyes, they have hands, we're going to find out later, they're able to carry things and move things, and oh yes, they have four faces that all look different. They would have been, again, kids and I were talking about this actually yesterday when we were doing a little Christmas shopping. What do the angels have to say every time they show up anywhere in the scriptures? Don't be afraid. Because literally, a creature of wings, eyes, hands, teeth, and faces that's made of fire is perhaps the most terrifying thing I can think of. That's nightmare fuel for the rest of your life. You see that, and it would ruin your sleep forever and ever. Amen. And here, this is what is in God's very presence, serving him, ministering in his presence, and I suspect probably each facing a different direction so that as John shows up, he's able to see each of the different faces. Either way, they represent the fullness of creation. So you can actually see, it's really intriguing as you're kind of working out uh, the importance of, of what God is doing. You have the triune God in the middle, you have his holy saints around, and then you have the fullness of creation on the outside. You get to see the, kind of the, the tears of intimacy as you move out. And here, these creatures sing the song of creation. We're told about it in Psalm 19. We're told about it in Romans 1. Here, it's explained, now personified. This God deserves praise because he is the holy God. Again, recognizing when they say holy, 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 it's because the grammatical uh, construction back then, that was how you you went from uh, a statement to the comparative to the superlative. It was how you would say holiest. If you wanted to, you know, call... uh, Uh, call your husband handsome, you would say handsome, handsome, handsome. You're handsome, you're handsomer than everybody else. You're the handsomest. Holy, 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 the Lord is not just holy. He's not just holier than everything else. He is the holiest. He is the Lord God Almighty. And it's introduced here as he is the one who was and is and is to come. This is, John's beginning to realize, this is a place of, in, in some ways, timelessness. Being in God's presence where everything is different. And then you get to see what the activity of this throne room is as the living creatures sing every time they sing, whenever that is. They give glory and honor. Uh, the elders, the people of God, join in. They fall down before the throne and they worship Him. And they sing their own song. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist because they were created. And what a portrait. There is one kind of inconvenient reality in this though. Something that you'll actually see as we continue through the book is that most of the images that show up in chapter 4 are the images that are specifically associated with God's judgment. These are oftentimes the images that are associated with the one who comes to destroy the world. And I I think this is probably really, in many ways, the reality of why so much Christianity is so weak. Because we've lost the reality of the great God. And we've lost the reality that that great God is going to destroy everyone. Everyone. Well, everyone that doesn't know him. I think there's actually a a kind of key connector in this one to help prompt our minds on this again, that in fact, actually behind the very throne itself is the beauty of the rainbow. Reminding us that this is the covenant-keeping God who, who keeps his promises, who's never going to destroy the world by water ever again, but he will by fire. And make it new. This is the mighty God. This is, I think, in many ways, kind of the challenge that we have before us As we are, um, again, such binary creatures. We, we don't do two kind of completely antithetical opposite things at the same time. We don't do that very well. And I tend to think that it's actually part of the joy of Christmas is that we are all so very comfortable with the idea of God as a baby. We're so very comfortable with the idea of Jesus being a baby in a manger because it's so unthreatening. It's so safe. I mean, I was a baby. I think all of you are babies. I think that's how it tends to work. Jesus was a baby just like me. There's nothing that kind of calls me out of myself. There's nothing that challenges me. There's nothing that forces me to think, does does my life have to be any different? Does God deserve every aspect of my life? Does he actually have the right to make a claim to it? Who cares if he thinks I'm a sinner? Who cares if I've done things against him? Who cares if he offers salvation? Why does it matter? He was a baby, I'm a baby, we're just the same. Until you get to Revelation chapter 4 and you realize, oh no, that's not exactly true, is it? I mean, Jesus, he was a baby. He is human, human like me. Oh, but at the same time, he's something very different. It's why the creeds end with highlighting that not only is he the God man, but he is the one who will return to judge the world the quick, and the dead. I think it's appropriate that we even harness this Christmas season, use it to contemplate the beautiful conundrum that is the God-man as a child and the God-man who is judge and exists in the same person. And to use that to fuel our wonder, to marvel, to be overwhelmed, to be struck by awe. I think out of all the things that technology is ruining right now, I suspect it is our sense of awe that will be one of the greatest losses that we never realize until it's fully gone. I mean, I'm the last of the generation to grow up without the internet and Photoshop and, you know, deep fakes and all of those things. And even I, I mean, I've said this, when Nikki and I first went to the Grand Canyon, the first thing I thought was, oh, that looks Photoshopped. Because so much of technology ruins our sense of wonder. And may it be that even as we wrestle through texts like this, wrestle through the God-man in a manger, (coughs) even plead with the Lord that he would restore our sense of wonder. Because I suspect if you're anything like me, we probably don't do a very good job of that. It's not our forte. Let's pray. Lord, we do humble ourselves before you. We admit our weakness. We are rotten (coughs) at many things. (laughs) You know this, but particularly at wonder, at marvel, at being struck in awe. And, O God, we ask that you would correct our minds and our hearts. Stir up in us love, delight, desire, and obedience, not because we are, again, so mighty, but because we are weak and Christ is strong.